Hey, Rockbridge, uh, my name is Matt. I want to welcome you at all of our physical locations. We're one church, multiple locations, multiple languages, and also welcome those of you that are watching online. Hey, before we jump into the message, we were, I want to remind everybody that next weekend is Christmas at Rockbridge or our Christmas Eve services. And, and so we have a Rockbridge PM service on Thursday in our Dalton campus, and then all of our physical campuses have services on uh, Sunday on the weekend, and all of those will be the same. They will all be themed around Christmas Eve. It is a great time, as we prayed last week, to bring folks with you that may not have a church family, may not know uh, Emmanuel, God with us. They may not know Christ, and, and we're going to help share and show Christ and praying that the Holy Spirit uh, works in all of us, but especially those who may be far from God or disconnected from God. So Christmas Eve coming up uh, <clears throat> next weekend. Today we're going to continue navigating through this uh, incredible story of First Samuel and, and, and the rise of the King Saul and his demise. And we're looking at this guy who's, who's going to become king eventually. His name is David. In fact, one of Jesus' titles, even at a very, very young age, is the son of David because he comes from that lineage. And so we're in First Samuel chapter 24. And, but to meet the dynamics that are going to go on in chapter 24, and, and they're dynamics that go on in your life, even if you're not a Christian, in my life, there, to meet these dynamics, we need to understand something that we see in the Christmas story as well, which is this, that, that like the main characters of Christmas, and by that I really am talking about Mary and Joseph, uh, they initially didn't want to be part of Christmas. Now, now, they didn't call it Christmas, but they didn't want to be part of it. They didn't want to be part of it. Like Joseph finds out his, his fiance, Mary, is pregnant, and so he's going to divorce her. He doesn't know yet that she's pregnant because she's been selected by God to be the, uh, the earthly mother, if you will, of, of God becoming man, God becoming Jesus. So he's going to divorce her. Mary, when the Holy Spirit, the angel, begins to talk to her about being the mother uh, of, of Jesus, she's deeply troubled. And that means like she doesn't want any part of this. And then she gets hung up on how is all this going to happen? Because I'm a virgin, she says. And so she's got all these questions and, 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 and these things. And so they don't initially want to be part of Christmas. And that shows us a universal tension that we all feel in life to some degree or another. And the tension is this, where we are versus where we want to be. And if something interferes, if something gets in the way, if, if hey, where we are and where, where we're being asked to go, we don't want to go. I mean, we, we get hung up, right? We, we don't want to go. We want to divorce her quietly. We're deeply troubled because this is in the way, even though where, where they were being led is where God wanted them to be. And, and so in this tension, we get confusion about God's work and God's will, so to speak. Like most of us believe this. This is what most of us believe. God's work is to get me or help me get where I want to be, not to interfere with it or disrupt it or interrupt it. And if you feel like God hasn't done his work to get you where you want to be, then you probably at some point in your life, maybe even now, have given up on God. And then there's confusion because most of us believe where we want to be is God's will for us. That where we want to be is God's will for us. But what we're going to, what we, where we get hung up is we make kind of three default assumptions about how God works and what God's will is for our life. The assumptions are this, God's will 
and God's work are going to be convenient for us, popular with others, and relative to our situation. Meaning, hey, I, me and my deal, this is what's required. This, based on my situation, my, contact, my context, you know, this is what I prefer, this is what I think. And so we think God's will is going to be convenient, popular, and just kind of relative to our situation. Meaning, we might say, well, if you knew, if you knew what happened to me, you would be angry too. And it's God's okay that I'm angry relative to my situation. We're in love, so I can redefine human, you know, sexuality because that God, God understands because we're in love, right? That's relative to our situation. And then God's will is going to be convenient. God's will is going to be popular. And so God's will is going to be relative to our situation. And the challenge that, gets, that, get, that, that we're going to face today is God's work and God's will are not convenient or not usually, not popular or not usually, and not relative to our situation. Situation, meaning God's will and God's work are going to align to objective truth or to absolute truth. Boy, that's not popular this day and age, is it? So in this situation that we're going to meet David in 1 Samuel 24, we're going to encounter all of this, encounter all of these tensions, and see how we can move forward in faith, not necessarily to where we want to be, but to where God would have us be. And isn't that the story of Mary and Joseph? And maybe that could be part of our story as well. First Samuel chapter 24. Remember David's being hunted by Saul. So when Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told David is in the wilderness near En Gedi. So Saul took 3,000 of Israel's fit young men, their best soldiers, and went to look for David and his men in front of the rocks of the wild goats. Verse 3, when Saul came to the sheep pens along the road, a cave was there, and he went in to relieve himself. Man, I love the Bible. It's just about real people, right? He goes in to, to go to the bathroom. He did not know this, but David and his men were staying in the, in the deep recesses of the cave, and so David's men say to David, look, this is the day the Lord told you about. I will, hand you, I will hand your enemy over to you so you can do to him whatever you desire. And then it says David got up. And this is a decisive, he's about to get up and do something. Now, if you look at this, this story and we look at it and take it at, at face value, we have all the elements we've just talked about, right? Here, this is God's will for you to be the king, right? This is the step. This is the day. Finally, we can quit running. We can quit hiding. We can quit fighting. Obviously, this is the open door, right? Go for it. So it's popular with the troops. I mean, they're tired of running. They're tired of being away from home. It's awfully convenient that he go, he's got 3,000 men with him, but because he's going in to relieve himself, he's, he's by himself. Little does he know, David's in there with his fighting men as well. So all the elements where we would all kind of agree, this is God's will. David can take out Saul and we're done with the war. We're done with the running. The people around us will be happy. David, this is your situation. Go ahead, get rid of King Saul. Now, again, you're like, I've never been in something like that. You've been in a situation where there seemed to be 
a shortcut from where you were to where you wanted to be. And maybe where you presumed God wanted you to be as well. And you took the shortcut. And you assumed, and this is God's will. Because it's convenient. Or it's popular. Or, it, God, it really fits the context, the situation, the circumstances that I'm in. We've been there. Look what it says. David got up and secretly, all he does is cut off a piece of the cloth or a corner of Saul's robe. Afterwards, David's conscience bothered him because he had cut off the corner of Saul's robe. And you're like, whoa, 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 whoa. David, all your men are for you taking Saul out. The opportunity was there. The shortcut was there. It was the easy way, the convenient way. Surely God had a hand in that because God wants our life to be convenient and easy, right? But he's bothered because he had cut off the corner of the king's robe and he said to his men, as the Lord is my witness, I would never do such a thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed. So what he's saying is, hey, listen, God has anointed Saul as king on this day. And, and, and until God changes that, I, it is not my place to hurt, to harm King Saul. I have to respect the authority and the anointing that God, that God has upon him. And he says, I will never lift my hand against him since he is the Lord's anointed. And then with these words, David persuaded. And this is very, very strong verbal language. This is David had to get, had to raise his voice. David had to get animated. David had to be insistent. He persuaded, he ordered, he commanded he, his men. And he did not let them rise up against Saul. Then Saul left the cave and went on his way. Now, this is kind of unique in all of Scripture, this incredible story, because everybody in the story, except for David, they see opportunity, but David sees temptation. David sees temptation. So, so David, something in, something in David is like, even though this is convenient, even though this would be, uh, even though this is popular with the guys, the troops, and the men, and even though this seems to fit God's personal will for my life that I become the king, I'm not going to take this opportunity. I'm not going to take this shortcut because there's a temptation there. Saul is the Lord's anointed. And, and, and another thing that we see in this dynamic that sometimes gets the best of us is our emotions, right? The emotions of the moment. Right? Emotions are not gui emotions are gauges, they're not guides. But in the emotions of the moment, we can see that when emotions are high, it is easy to self-deceive. Self-deception becomes easy because you know, I had a right to feel the way I did. I had a right to be angry. I had a peace about it because the door was obviously open and from God. And, and so our emotions are self-deceptive, -de self right? Because, but self-deception, what it looks like is self-justification. We start justifying our actions. We start justifying our decisions. Like it felt good to me. It seemed good to me. Uh, you know, he, look what Saul had, all the trouble he had caused me. Surely God wanted to save me from more trouble. I mean, it was convenient. It was popular. And so we all have this way to become our own defense attorney 
And if you knew what I'd been through, if you had, if you'd have, done, you'd have been there, you'd have done the same thing, and all of that. Those emotions are operating in David's men, but David's conscience is affected not by in the moment opportunity and not by in the moment emotions. See, David knows something. He'll forget it later on. He forgot it last week if you were here last week. But he knows something is true, that we cannot achieve God's purposes by violating God's principles. Say that again. We cannot achieve God's plans, God's will, God's purposes by violating his commands, his principles, if you will, his law. So let me say this. God is interested, yes, in where we are going, but he's also interested in how we get there. So yes, God wants David to become the king. That's a promise. But how David becomes the king cannot violate God's principles. And it's the same for all of us. Now, this means you and God, me and God, we're, all, we're not always going to be on the same timetable. Especially now, right? Because for us, it's fast food, it's microwaves, and it is, you know, faster internet. It is faster self, you know, we're going to 5G and on and on, right? Everything's going to be faster. But God is still God. So we're like, hey, God, when? God, God, why? God, what? God, when? God, why haven't you? How we get there matters deeply to God. And it's David in the cave with pressure, peer pressure all around him, the opportunity, quote unquote, the shortcut, quote unquote, right in front of him. It's David that says, not this way. Not this way. And that speaks to the role of the conscience the role of the conscience. So the conscience is kind of like something that it's, it's like an alarm that warns us we're getting close to something or that something is good or bad or potentially good or potentially bad. And the conscience, though, is kind of like a thermostat. It's got to be set, right? It's got to be set. I, I would guess for the married folks here, you know, you, you and your wife have a different definition of hot and cold to some degree. And so where your thermostat gets set is probably one of the top three, you know, first fights, quote unquote, or disagreements you and your wife actually had, right? I think it's too hot. And, and too hot is set at, you know, this. I think it should be set at 68. Beth thinks it should be set at 70. Who wins, right? She does, of course, guys. That's free. But anyway, you know what I'm talking about, right? It's got to be set. Our conscience gets set. So the question is, what sets our conscience? Just ask that question right now, church. What sets your conscience? Now, with no help at all, do you know what mostly, what will set our conscience if we're not careful? What's convenient? What's popular? And what's relative makes sense to me, myself, and I? And then we'll cloud all that or camouflage all that in spiritual language. God opened the door. Everybody else was in, for it, was in favor of it too. 
It, it, it fit where I wanted to be in my life. But in David, and I would suggest in Joseph, who's called one of the sons of David because he's connected to David's bloodline, and in Mary, something else was setting their conscience. In fact, let, let's fast forward from this story. Let's go to the story of Christmas, Jesus' birth, and let's look at Mary. Remember, Mary initially didn't want to go where God was taking her. The tension, right? God, how do you work? God, what are you doing? Listen to what happens. The angel says to her, he says, hey, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, Mary, and the power of the Most High will sh overshadow you. This is the, uh, the answer to her how question. How can this be? Therefore, the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God, for nothing will be impossible with God. And then Mary gives her response, and she shows. Now, she knows the road she is being asked to go down is not popular because everybody except her and Joseph and then her family, Elizabeth, John the Baptist's mother, everybody is going to see that she's pregnant and she's not yet married. So she's going to be the talk of the town. It's not going to be convenient because her plan was to get married. God's plan, carry Jesus in your body and get married. And so it doesn't kind of make sense. But what does Mary say? See, I am the Lord's servant. May it happen to me as you have said. Then the angel left her. Something else besides popular, convenient, relative to me, what's best for me. Maybe not best for you, but it's best for me. Something else is governing her conscience let's look at Joseph because remember Joseph was going to divorce Mary even though they were betrothed or engaged right but she he found out she was pregnant he's like oh it's not mine I'm going to divorce her what changed Joseph the birth of Jesus came about this way after his mother had been engaged to Joseph it was discovered before they came together as a married couple that she was pregnant from the Holy Spirit so her husband, Joseph, being a righteous man, not wanting to disgrace her publicly, decided to end the engagement, which back then would have been something very similar to a legal proceeding called divorce, decided to divorce her secretly. God, this is where I'm at, and that's not where I want to be. So I'm going to divorce her. But after he had considered these things, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, Ah, our David, our, our first Samuel David. Don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. Head scratcher. Because what has been conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. It's from God. She's carrying the presence of God. She will give birth to a son. And Joseph, you got to name him. And you're going to name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And when Joseph woke up, he did as the Lord's angel had commanded him. He married her. If you take David's response in the cave, 
how God or how Mary and Joseph changed their course from where they wanted to be to where God wanted them to go. What you, what you see, their conscience, which our conscience is that helper, that guide that to, to, to be sensitive to things, the right things. Their conscience is set to honor the presence of God. Joseph, what's in, what's, what's in Mary is from the Holy Spirit. Mary, the Holy Spirit will overshadow you. David, how can I touch the Lord's anointed? The anointing of God is God's special presence is on him for this position, for this season. And when God removes him from that position, then I'll move in ahead, but I will not get ahead of God's presence. Right? So what if we said, God, my conscience, my sensitivity, we all have sensitivities, right? Is not going to be set by what's convenient, by what's popular, by what's relatively best for me. God, we're gonna honor your presence. God's always present, we call that his omnipresence. And then God can be particularly present or specially present in a way that we can sense. And David is so sensitive to God's will and ways and his presence that he's bothered that he cut off a piece of Saul's robe, which tells us something about are we in step with or honoring or cherishing the presence of the Lord? The greater the sense of God and his presence, the greater the sense of sin right David's troops didn't sense any sin they're like kill him capture him take him out and David gets up and moves forward and just cuts off a piece of his robe and it bothers him let me ask you something church could you have normalized Sin in your life? Because it's convenient, it's popular, it just kind of fits. And no big deal. God understands. And by normalizing a sin or a sense of sin in your life, you've desensitized yourself to the presence of God. Now see, here's the, here's the, here's the amazing thing. Here's the amazing thing. What's God's will for my life? To be slash become a type of person. So let me say it this way. Getting somewhere in life, getting married, getting a promotion, getting a house and two cars, having kids, having a dog, getting to retirement, getting to be able to take longer vacations, getting somewhere in life never 
supersedes becoming someone that God can entrust with his purposes and his special, God's with me, presence. Now, I'm hoping for some of us that there's, there's a little bit of a Holy Spirit wrestling match going on. Because, you know, we can take a picture of this, we can write this down in our bulletin, talk about it in our marriages, talk about it in our small groups. But the question is, does this actually show up in our lives and how we make decisions on where to go and where not to go? Because, listen, I talk about it all the time. All of us are students, right? Are we students of Jesus? Are we students of culture? What are we students of? So if, if with no intentionality, all of us are brought up in a culture that says, you need to get somewhere in life. Get, get a job, get to college, graduate high school, get married, become a parent, set, get somewhere financially, get somewhere where you live. We're all discipled to get somewhere in life. And so when the opportunity arises in the cave, you take it. Because you got to get somewhere in life. But when your conscience is set to staying and becoming and being as close to the Lord as possible, because we're called Christ followers, that getting somewhere in life never overshadows, never supersedes becoming someone that God can entrust with his purposes and his special presence why did Joseph not divorce Mary? Why did Mary say, okay, take over my body, even though people are going to laugh at me and think I'm one of those kind of women? Because they both said, we are people that God can entrust with his purposes and his special presence. Why in the cave was David so bothered by simply creating a, you know, a problem with Saul's wardrobe? Because David knew what was more important than him becoming the king, and that's where I gotta get in life, was David being the type of person God could entrust with his purposes and presence. That's the beauty of the Christmas story, right? Now, let's do something. Let's keep thinking about this, okay? Let's go all the way to heaven. And we're going to go to Revelation, right? Let's go all the way to heaven. Let's get a quick snapshot of what's going to be so uh, marked. What's the, what's, the, what's the main kind of dynamic of heaven, okay? Let's, let's, just, let's just go there. Go to Revelation 22 for a moment. No longer will there be any curse upon anything. Now, even though you and I do things that, that cause the, that when I say curse, that's God cursed uh, literally everything in creation after sin entered the world. So that makes work hard. That makes uh, us blame other people. Um, it, nature is cursed right now. I mean, every, our, our DNA is affected by the curse. We physically die, even though that wasn't God's quote, or, uh, you know, maybe original plan. So everything is cursed. You know, we've, we, we, the pain adversity, affliction. So in heaven, the, in the new creation, new heavens, new earth, no, no curse. So most of us, that's awesome, right? Even though 
Sometimes we contribute to the curse and keep it going with decisions we make, especially when we think God's will is convenient, popular, and relative to us. That's another story. So no, no, no curse, no cancer, none of that, right? Everybody, amen. But let's go on. For the throne of God and the Lamb, that's Jesus, will be there and his servants will worship him and they will see his face or see his face and his name will be written on their foreheads. That's the identity. We're his. And there will be no night there, no need for lamps or sun for the Lord God will shine upon them and they will reign forever and ever. Such will be the powerful presence of God. No curse and his presence unadulterated in high death, 100%, never tired, never bored, all of God, all the time. And so here's the question as we see David getting, is he becoming the kind of person who can become the king of Israel? Here's the question. Am I becoming a person who can actually enjoy heaven? And do you see how the cultural push to be, to get somewhere in life might actually require you to become a person who would not enjoy heaven? Because in heaven, it's not all about us. It's all about him. The chapter closes with two speeches, one by David and one by Saul. So David gets up, goes out of the cave, and he calls out to Saul, and he says, My Lord, the king. And Saul looked behind him, and David knelt below with his face to the ground. He paid homage. David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of people who say, Look, David intends to harm you. You can see with your own eyes that the Lord handed you over to me today or put you in front of me today. Someone advised me to kill you, but I took pity on you and I said, I won't lift my hand against my Lord since he is the Lord's anointed. He, you, his hand is on you in this role until it's not, right? Look, my father, look at the corner of your robe in my hand for I cut it off, but I didn't kill you. Recognize that I've committed no crime, no rebellion. I haven't sinned against you, even though you're hunting me down to take my life. May the Lord, he's still sensitive to God's presence and his work in his life. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord take vengeance on you for me. Vengeance is the Lord's, not mine. But my hand will never be against you. And as the old proverb says, he quotes something, wickedness comes from wicked people. My hand will never be against you. Who has the king of Israel come after? What are you chasing after? A dead dog, a single flea? May the Lord, sensitive to the Lord's presence, be judge and decide between you and me. May he take notice and plead my case and deliver me from you. My positioning in life is God's responsibility. So I, I, crazy, I, I was reading this, I was like, how can David be so humble? He's in the right, Saul's in the wrong. Being right makes you prideful, doesn't it? How can David not be angry and bitter? He, we would say, oh, David, you, gotta, you should be so mad. David, how, you should be bitter and frustrated and angry because, gosh, you know, he's out to get you. How can he display kindness to his enemy? He sort of looks Jesus-like, doesn't he? Jesus is a friend of sinners. Jesus is humble enough to hang on a cross. Jesus from the cross 
says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Jesus, when he meets Judas, who's coming to betray him, calls him, what? Betrayer? Benedict Arnold? No, he says, Jesus, you're my friend, but do what you got to do. How can he be humble? How can he not be angry and bitter? How can he display kindness to his enemies? Let's put it on. Let's turn the questions and put them on us. How would we act if we really believed that God was always with us and God was always for us? Even though we didn't deserve it. David knew where he came from. Came from being a shepherd boy. He, He knew what God's grace on his life meant. How would we act if we really believed God was with us and God was for us? Would we not be humble? Why would we be angry and bitter when when God is our reward and God has our future? And why can we not display kindness to our enemy because we have something our enemy can't take away? God's with us and God's for us. Our enemy can't take that away. But David's kindness in this speech and, and, and not killing Saul and talking to Saul is intended to do something in Saul. It's very Christ-like. Let me read Romans 2, 4 and then show you Saul's speech. Do you despise the riches of his kindness, restraint, and patience? This is God's kindness, restraint, and patience. David's reflecting the patience, the restraint, and the kindness of God to Saul. Not recognizing that God's kindness has a purpose. It's intended to lead you to repentance. I firmly believe the end of 1 Samuel 24 is an invitation to Saul to repent. So what does Saul say? Saul replied, is that your voice, David, my son? Then he wept aloud. He says, David, you are more righteous than I, for you have done what is good to me, though I have done what is evil to you. Now we could all say that to God. God, you are way more righteous than us. You have done good to us through your son, Jesus Christ, though we have done what is evil because we've sinned against you. Verse 18, you yourself have told me today what good you did for me. When the Lord handed me over to you, you didn't kill me. When a man finds his enemy, does he let him go unharmed? Who acts that way? But may the Lord repay you with good for what you've done for me today. Now I know for certain you will be king, but in God's way, in God's time. And the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hand. Therefore, swear to me by the Lord that you will not cut off my descendants or wipe out my name from my father's family. Take care of my family when I lose the throne. So David swore to Saul. Saul went back home. David and his men went back up to the stronghold. This kindness was intended to give Saul that chance to repent. Now, when we get back into this story of the the crown series after the new year, we'll see something. Saul doesn't really repent. So it teaches us something, okay? That repentance is not just emotion in the moment. Oh, I'm so sorry. Just because someone's crying in church doesn't mean they're repenting. Repentance is more than agreement. I know I've done wrong. God, I know you're good. I know I've hurt. I know I've done the evil things. It's more than agreement. Repentance is a real change in direction. So unfortunately, Saul is not repentant. But what we see 
in this story, both in where does repentance really come from and where does obedience, Mary, Joseph, David's obedience come from, obedience when it's not popular, not convenient, and not, you know, it doesn't personally fit us, right? It's going to be more uh, difficult for us, right? Where does repentance come from? Where does obedience come from? It comes from the same place. It comes from knowing all that God has done and will do for his people. That's where it comes from. So if we're sitting here like, gosh, how can I exhibit uh, the restraint of David, the patience of David, the self-control of David? How, how, how could I not take this, the shortcut that short circuits me outside of God's will? How can I get to a place where I'm sorry for my sins? How can I get to a place of being right with God? It's knowing all that God has done and will do for his people. David leaves this story and all he gets is a word of assurance. Hey, eventually you're going to be the king. But his circumstances don't change. So this Christmas season, may we all pause right now and reflect on what God has done and will do. And as we see and understand and celebrate and rejoice that God with us, Emmanuel, joy to the world, right? Jesus, who went from the manger to Calvary and died on the cross, may we behold, may we see what he's done. And may that seeing spur us to places of repentance and to greater obedience to our Lord and Savior and King, Jesus Christ. And she will have a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all of this occurred to fulfill the Lord's message through his prophet. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. Would you bow your heads, close your eyes, and let's pray. Just wherever you are, you're at home watching on your computer, listening in your car, you're in a Rockbridge worship venue. Would you just sit for a moment, and, and as best you can, just fix your eyes on what God has done. Through Jesus Christ. Christmas to the cross. God with us to save us from our sins. To save and love and give undeserving people an inheritance, a future where the curse is no more where the glory of God is the light of mankind, where we will worship and enjoy God without end, and it'll never, ever, ever, ever be boring, and every day will be better than the day before it. God, may we behold you for who you are, for what you have done, and for what you have promised to do. And I pray, God, as we see that and appreciate that, for some of us, God, it would lead us to say, you know what, God? There's a specific sin I've got to stop. And thank you for your patience and your restraint and your kindness. 
and tell you, God, I'm turning back to you. God, may we see and behold what you've done and may we realize we are called to be radically obedient. We are called to follow you even when it's not popular, definitely when it's not convenient, and no matter what, God. God, make us a kind of people who make a difference here on earth and are ready for heaven. In the name of the Father, the Son, Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.